Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Coming to you almost live from our studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from articles, social media, past audiobooks, and other spoken word projects. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Thank you very much, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, we listen to the rest of a great short story, one that I did a long time ago. One of the first I had ever done, actually, and it's by a great author named John Isaac Jones. I'll be back to tell you what it is right after this. Miles Junction, Rust Belt, USA, where hope is scarce and hardship is a way of life. It's but one of many northeastern Ohio towns, long forgotten and left behind, its residents living on the cusp of financial, emotional, even spiritual destitution. Their lives and others are linked by a ruined yet starkly beautiful post-industrial landscape, a desolate vestige of our fractured American dream. In just the right light, is a glimpse at one region's bleak inheritance and the precarious lives of those who remain. Written by William R. Solden and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. Hey, Tom Zania here butting in for just a very special announcement. Today, of course, is the 16th of December, but next Wednesday is the 23rd, only two days before Christmas. Let's have a party on the 23rd. I'll be playing clips from different shows and just having a good time with you all. Bring something to drink. We'll have a great time. Merry Christmas, everyone. New York City. It's the world capital of competition. It's the place the championship teams call home. The place where the winners live. Baseball, basketball, and tennis are not the only competitive sports for which New York is famous. In fact, the very biggest game in town is law. Yes, the Big Apple is where America's top legal teams slug it out for their clients. Here's where they stay at the very top of their game. When it comes to asbestos litigation, fighting on behalf of mesothelioma and lung cancer victims and their families, you'll find the top team of legal warriors right here in the heart of the city. And that team is Whites and Luxembourg, the law firm that's already won over $6 billion for asbestos victims and their families. Yes, six billion dollars, more than the New York Yankees have made in over 30 years. Sure, you can find Bush League teams outside of the big city. Yes, there are some okay minor league ballplayers, hoopsters, and tennis pros out there. But when it comes to litigating your mesothelioma case, you're not just playing a game. 
You're fighting for your life. If you're an asbestos victim looking for the best damn legal team to fight for your life, New York City is where you'll find it. And Whites and Luxembourg is its name. And we are back. So, I'm referring to a story that I played the beginning of quite a long time ago. The author is John Isaac Jones. The story is called Going Home. Now, this title, if you look in audible.com, this title is seen everywhere, Going Home, in a million different used in a million different ways. Um, now, in this particular story, it's it's about a prison inmate. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I, you know, it sounds kind of familiar. It is. It is familiar. It's something that's probably been used uh, many times before. Uh, this story began last time I, I played a piece of it, with a prisoner being pulled out of his cell and led down the Green Mile, that walk to the electric chair. And I'm going to, to uh, start it out um, about a quarter of a way through and play it until the end of the story. Uh this story, of course, uh, centers around one, one man and his moments before the electric chair and the moments that happen after. And you're about to learn all about this right now. This is by John Isaac Jones. The story is going home. The group had reached the execution chamber. Once the warden unlocked the door, Archie was led inside and the attendants uncuffed his hands, seated him in the wooden chair, and began strapping him in. Strong leather straps were tightened securely around his ankles, his arms, and his chest. The silver dome was lowered and fitted over his head. Finally, satisfied that everything was ready, the attendants stepped away from the prisoner. The warden stood in a small alcove in the execution chamber, some ten feet from the electric chair. Behind him was a clock and a telephone. He looked at the clock. It read 11.58. There was a long, deathly silence. Then, at just after 11.59, the warden looked toward the executioner, who was standing behind the electric chair, his hand on the switch. As the seconds ticked away, the warden started to raise his hand. The executioner put his hand on the switch. Suddenly the phone rang. The warden answered the phone. Governor, the warden asked. All eyes and ears inside the execution chamber turned to the warden. Yes, the warden said. We're about to conduct the execution even as we speak. For several moments, the warden listened. Yes, sir, he said. I understand. 
The warden continued listening and said, Yes, sir, another six or seven times. Finally, everyone in the execution chamber could see that the conversation was about to come to an end. Yes, Governor, he said finally. I will see that your instructions are carried out. The warden hung up the phone. Unstrap the prisoner, he said. The prisoner has been given a reprieve. The governor says the chief witness against him has recanted his testimony and the judge has granted a new trial. The warden turned to face Archie. You're a free man, he said. You're going home. Archie was stunned at the news. It was a miracle. He had given up all hope, and now the long and tireless efforts of his attorneys had finally brought some positive results. Archie couldn't believe he was a free man, and he was going home. Suddenly, Archie found himself on a bus bound for his hometown of Plumtree, Georgia. It felt so good to be out, to breathe fresh air, to see green grass and bright sunshine be able to swing his arms without fear of hitting an iron bar or a wall. He was anxious to get to Plumtree. He couldn't wait to see Main Street and how it had changed over the past 11 years. He wanted to go to the Mexican chili parlor and see his sister Mabel. Wanted to see his old friends at the pool hall. Then he planned to see Big Betty down at the Morris Hotel. He hadn't been with a woman in a long time. Most of all, he wanted to go back to the old family farm, say his mother. She had a spare bedroom, and he could sleep all he wanted. She had canned vegetables from the garden and a cow that gave a gallon of fresh milk a day. Oh, how he longed to be in her comforting presence, to see the peacefulness in her eyes, to sit at her table and eat some of her fried peach pies. Once the bus arrived, Archie, suitcase in hand, wasted no time walking the two blocks to Main Street. There, at the corner of Main and Chestnut, he stopped and looked for the Mexican chili parlor. It was gone. There was a hardware store where the restaurant had once stood. He stepped back to the curb and surveyed the entire street. Yes, this was the place but there was no more Mexican chili parlor. Well, so much for my sister, he thought, as he continued walking down Main Street. The old five-and-dime store where Archie had shoplifted marbles and candy and toy cars was still there. There was Snellgrove's drugstore, the old post office, and Tom Anderson's office supply. At the corner of Main and Fourth Street, he turned right and headed for the smokehouse pool hall. The moment Archie entered the door, Grady Sizemore yelled, Archie! Suddenly, all the pool players stopped playing pool and many stepped forward to greet their old friend. When did you get out? Grady asked. I beat a murder rap, Archie said. I'm a free man. Well, congratulations, he said. Jaybird's in the back room playing blackjack. He'd love to see you. Over the next fifteen minutes, Archie reacquainted himself with his old friends. There was Harry Pickett, who Archie had worked with at the Plum Tree Sanitation Department. 
There was Rusty Walden, for whom he had fenced a truckload of stolen men's shirts down in Florida. Archie was so happy to see Floyd Abernathy, his old friend from high school, who had been paralyzed in an auto crash while running from the police after a supermarket heist. There were other old friends, Big Willie Wilson, Charlie Dupree, and Tommy Hammock, all of whom he had known since childhood. Suddenly, the door to the back room opened, and J. Bird Watson emerged. J. Bird couldn't stop laughing when he saw Archie. A free man, he said over and over. A free man? I can't believe it. You know there's something I've been wanting to talk to you about. With that statement, J. Bird invited Archie to go to the back room so they could talk privately. Several minutes later, once they were seated, J. Bird began. There's a service station in Defuniac Springs, Florida, run by an old man, he said. He sells gas and diesel fuel to truckers. He sells thousands and thousands of gallons of diesel every day, and he always has lots of cash on hand. My friend says he sometimes has 10000 to $15,000 at a time. Archie could see where the conversation was going. Whoa, whoa, he said. If you're angling for me to do a job with you, I'm not interested. I'm going straight. Don't be stupid, Jaybird said. It's just an old man. We could hit him in the head and be gone before anybody knew what happened. There could easily be five or six grand apiece in it. No, Archie said firmly. I'm going straight. Jaybird shook his head with disapproval. You want to have a nip with me? He said. I got a fresh pint of Miller's hollow moonshine in the trunk of my car. No, Archie said again. I quit drinking. I don't mess with that stuff no more. Just for old times' sake? Jaybird asked. Archie shook his head. You could see that all Jaybird wanted to do was get him in trouble again. Moments later, he said goodbye to his former partner in crime, grabbed his suitcase, and stepped back out onto the street. Once outside again, he peered down 4th Street, where, some two blocks away, he saw a sign that read Morris Hotel. Some ten minutes later, he was standing in front of the sign. He went inside to the desk. Who would you like to see, the clerk asked. Big Betty, Archie said. The clerk seemed surprised. Big Betty, he said. We have several girls that are much younger than her. No, I want to see Big Betty, Archie said firmly. Okay, the clerk said. That's $6 for the room and $25 for Big Betty. Archie plunked $31 cash on the counter, and the clerk handed him the key. That's room 241, the clerk said. The moment Archie opened the door, Big Betty stared at him as if she had seen a ghost. Archie, she said. What happened? I thought you were a goner. I read in the papers they were sending you to the chair. How'd you get out? After several minutes of explaining about his reprieve, Big Betty was ready to get down to business. Okay, she said. Get those clothes off. I'm going to make a new man out of you. 
Archie loved being with Big Betty, even though she was in her late 40s now. She had gained some weight in recent years, and the wrinkles around her lips were deeper now. But she was a woman who truly knew her business. She had great hands, and she knew how to use them. Also, she took pride in her work. I know how to satisfy a man, she had once told him. Any man. As promised, Archie was a new man when he walked out of the Morris Hotel. Back out on the street again, he hailed a taxi. I'm going to the Chalfant Farm, he told the driver. Outside of town, he glanced out the cab window at Plum Tree High School, where he had attended classes off and on for almost 11 years. There, many years ago, on the front lawn, he had fought Harold Bowling over an ice cream cone until the principal had separated them. The old sycamore tree, much larger now, stood in the corner of the playground where he had played softball and horseshoes and tagged with his classmates. There was the high hill made up of Georgia red clay overlooking the playground where Archie and his friends would slide down the hill on cardboard boxes after a rain. Moments later, he saw the windmill on the old Chalfant farm and he knew he was nearing his destination. The cab stopped. Archie got out and paid the driver. As the cab pulled away, Archie instinctively peered across a pasture through a thicket of pines and sweet gums at the old family farmhouse some one hundred yards away. This was where he had grown up. This was the world of his childhood. Then, suitcase in hand, he started walking down the dirt road from the highway to the farmhouse. As he walked, he realized he had forgotten how much he loved South Georgia in late April. Birds were singing. Dogwoods were in bloom. Yellow honeysuckle hung in heavy pods along the fences and hedgerows. And the entire countryside was rife with vibrant greens and yellows. Suddenly, he stopped. There to his left, overgrown with weeds and blocked by a fallen tree, was what remained of the old path to the river. It was down this path he walked hand in hand with Maynell Thompson many, many times. He was seventeen, she was sixteen, and he vividly remembered the Sunday afternoon they walked down that very path to the river, went skinny-dipping, made love and professed their eternal devotion to one another. Eight months later, however, after Archie was sent to the state reformatory for stealing a car, she visited him and told him she was going to marry Hollis Wissonant. Hollis had a steady job at the mobile home manufacturing plant, she said, and he wanted to make something out of himself. It was nothing personal, Maynell explained, but she wanted a man with a future. Now, Archie was walking past the waving amber fields of Broomsage, where he and his cousins had played cowboys and Indians and caught lightning bugs. As he rounded a bend in the road, he glanced toward the vegetable garden. There was his mother tilling the soil with a hoe. She was hilling pole beans. Mama, Archie called. The old woman slowly raised her body, pushed her glasses up on her nose, and turned to the direction of the sound. A huge smile burst across her face. Archie, she yelled. Is that you? It's me, Mama. 
Archie yelled back. And then he watched as his mother came running between the rows of okra and tomatoes and sweet corn as fast as her heavy frame would allow. It was so good to be home. So good to find some peace and comfort and security for a change. Finally, she had reached him, and mother and son clasped one another with all their might. As he looked into his mother's face, huge tears were rolling down his cheeks. Somehow, someway, in his heart of hearts, he knew he would never look into his mother's eyes again. Finally, Archie released the embrace and wiped away the tears. Come on, his mother said. Let's go to the house. I just made some fresh peach pies. Those were the exact words Archie wanted to hear. Moments later, he was seated at his mother's table. First, she served him a glass of cold cow's milk. Then she turned and started to the stove. With absolute pure lust, he watched as she took down the warm, cloth-wrapped peach pies from the oven. Moments later, she delivered two of them onto the plate in front of him. Archie, not wasting any time, quickly sliced up the two half-moon fruit pies and dabbed them with huge chunks of fresh cow's butter. He watched the butter melt, slowly and surely, into the flaky pieces of pie, waiting for each dwindling chunk of butter to ooze into the innermost crevices of the crust and filling them so that at just the right moment he could luxuriate in that perfect bite. Seconds later, that moment arrived. Archie took a bite and closed his eyes. He felt the savory warmth of the melting butter and fresh peach course across his taste buds. Oh, great God, he thought. This has to be the most wonderful taste in all the world. Archie felt like he had died and gone to heaven. Just as he was feeling the full rush of the warm buttered peach pie, his entire body suddenly convulsed like a clenched fist as 120,000 volts of electricity surged through his every vessel, organ, tissue, muscle, and sinew. His chest thrust violently forward, his arms and legs twisted desperately against the leather straps. Then a blinding streak of hot light flashed fatally across his consciousness. Everything was dark and silent. With a nod of his head, the warden signaled for the prison physician to do his duty. The medical officer, who was wearing a stethoscope, stepped forward and examined Archie for respiration, pulse, and heartbeat. Moments later, having finished his exam, he turned to the warden. The prisoner is dead, he said. The end. And that, of course, was going home through to the end. Um, going home by John Isaac Jones. John Isaac Jones is a writer, an American writer, and he is, last I heard, was living in South Florida. Uh, he has written for many newspapers. He wrote for the, I think he wrote for the National Enquirer or one of the tabloids. And um, 
He's a very interesting guy. I hope I can do more of his stories. And that was uh, one story of his that got me started. And uh, I went on to do several more of his books. And hopefully hopefully I'll do another one uh, in the near future. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends and have them tell their friends. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com or call 929-260-1952 if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks, Anchor.fm, for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.